0: Stepanovs, Dwight York 21 and a half minutes and a hat-trick my goodness me
1: what kind of morning has Dwight York had it's just carried on my goodness he slept well last night I'm sure of that it was York it's
0: 2-2 Dwight York has equalized from Manchester United and they have seen the Juventus away goal and they have raised it Welcome to the Manchester United podcast. I'm Sam, and I'm joined by the usual crew, Helen and Maisie. Guys, how are you? Good, Sam. Oh, good, mate. How are you? Uh, I'm very good, thank you. Um, good. Our guest today is one half of the most legendary strike partnerships United have ever seen. We've got Dwight York, uh, and he's currently in Dubai. He's been playing some golf. We think uh, Maisie, how does he compare to you?
2: Uh, he's a good, good player, Yorkie. He's, he's off. Uh, I think he's off scratch. So,
3: didn't he once want to become a professional after he finished playing football?
2: He did. He did. Yeah, when he finished football, I went to become pro golfer. But pro golfers are like pro footballers, and then you compare them to a non-league player. It's chalk and cheese. To become mm. a pro golfer, you've got to be absolutely exceptional. York is a good player, he is.
3: Have you ever beaten him?
2: Uh, I've never lost against him, Helen.
0: Good record. Yeah. Um, also, I want to ask him, Maisie, because you told us, on one of the very early podcasts, you told us all about how he went to Sir Alex and asked for the season off
2: yeah Yorkie yeah he, um, he actually went to go and see the manager the year after he won the treble and asked for a year out now who in the right mind would do that
0: brilliant well I suppose Dwight York is the answer exactly I'm looking forward to hearing what the uh, manager said
2: Can I hear the kids in Helen's background there just uh, chirping up, yeah? Sorry. Is that Heidi, is it? Oh, Lottie,
3: Yes, it's Heidi, well done. Yeah. Johnny's trying to look after three kids in his own, and it's dinner time. (laughs)
0: Courage. I suppose if if Johnny's struggling, Helen, we should get going. Um, I will quickly say thank you so much to everybody who got in touch about the Albert Morgan episode. Lots of people saying we need a part two, uh, and we can get a part two. Um, And not to give anything away, but Helen, you told us something about a potential part two just this morning.
3: Yeah, Johnny, before the podcast, had said to him, Any stories about Albert Morgan? Then that's whenever we talked about the um, changing room incident. And um, what was the other one? A couple other things he told me. But he just mentioned yesterday, oh, before the podcast, forgot to tell you that about the time Albert got electrocuted on preseason tour I was like how could you forget to tell me this <laughs> absolute gold information so yes we'll try and get Albert back for a part two because I can imagine there's many more stories like that oh yes um, we've also had a second wave of love for the Patrice Everett episode after the video version went out on MUTV recently a reminder if you're an MUTV subscriber you can watch brand new episodes of the podcast every Friday and the whole box set is on there if you want to binge there you go guys
2: box sets how oh, good
3: Ah. I know a podcast box set it's quite hard to say if you're not an MUTV subscriber then we post 10 minute clips to United's YouTube and there are further clips on the Man United app if you haven't downloaded that already anyway more of that kind of thing and our post match analysis for now shall we dial up Dwight in Dubai let's do it
2: that was a dial tone
3: It's Dwight York joining us. Dwight, how are you? How are things in Dubai? Uh,
1: as good as you could hope to, to be. I'm um, very lucky to be in this part of the world. Beautiful weather, really following the guidelines, not too many cases here and deaths, so, which is pretty good. They seems to get things spot on here and they're very disciplined as well,
3: mm-hmm. which is good. So has lockdown affected your gulf?
1: Yeah, well, for the first three months, as you know, when the when the whole pandemic thing had happened, um, Dubai was in a total lockdown for three months, really. Yeah, but you you know um, this this pandemic is much more than just my golf and people playing sport and all that. There's a lot of people obviously putting their life at risk. So those are the most important people out there trying to fight the cause of this virus and trying to make this place a better place for all of us. But yeah, I'm very lucky that I'm not one of those people who had to go out there and risk your life. So we we're very fortunate in that respect and. You know, there's a lot of lives obviously been lost along the way. So this just, is just a wake-up call for all of us. So we're lucky to be here.
2: Yoki, okay. how long have you lived in Dubai now? Just coming up for two
1: years. Why Dubai? Just needed a change. You know, I've been in England for 30 years. And, and of course, having the role as an ambassador for United as well, which makes you travel quite a lot. I've always been a person who likes to travel quite a lot. And so... Yeah you know, with that, I just felt by coming to Dubai, I used to come to Dubai quite a lot and I developed, uh, I got a lot of friends here as well, make me really, you know, make things really easy for you to make that transition. And I felt it's a perfect scenario because most of our work or most of my work in traveling wise is this part of the world. And, you know, every time you get to you stop off in Dubai, then you feel like you have to get another seven, eight hours before you get to England. Yeah. So it just kind of works itself out. I didn't plan it. It just kind of happened that way. Uh, but I think I've made the right call for now. And obviously, I, I have every intention of coming back home to, to England at one stage.
0: Okay. So take us from Dubai, back to the very beginning for you in Trinidad and Tobago. What was life like growing up?
1: Looking back, I mean, it was tough as a young kid. You know what I mean? Growing up, I was, I mean, a lot of people don't know, but I, I was you know, again, I come from a huge family, nine of us. i got nine siblings. We lived in a two-bedroom house at the time, you know what I mean? So growing up, even though it was so much fun, it was exciting because having my bigger brothers and sisters around me, beaches and palm trees and, you know, lots of fruit trees out there to, to sort of feast off of as well growing up, that was a really exciting time. We didn't have a lot. And, you know, football was just played in a park. Um, pretty much and so of course with my you know five other brothers they were all into sport we came from a very sporting background with very little and as you know football is the people sports I call it you don't need a lot of equipment to play football back home yeah. or anywhere in the world just get a ball and you run around and start kicking it so that's where it all kind of stemmed from and then having my bigger brothers and them guidance around the place just kind of enjoy doing that with not a care in the world really not knowing where my where my career or anything because it wasn't the career back then to look forward to it Was just kind of enjoying the moment. So, yeah, it was real fun. A uh, bit tough upbringing, but that's what made you the
2: person I am today, of course. Yoki, can you, can you log out, log back in? Only because you froze, mate. Hello, mate. Yoki, I can hear you, mate. But you just froze, pal. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yoki, go back on your 4G, mate. 4G,
3: Yorkevichu. you.
0: Tasca. Hi. I don't want to tell you how to produce. I reckon cut this bit out.
3: Well,
1: not for you to decide,
0: mate. <laughs> no, absolutely, it's absolutely right. Is your is your decision? I just felt maybe I could offer that insight.
2: Yorke,
1: okay?
3: can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, yes, you're back.
0: That's better. Yes. So Yorke, okay.
2: you're um. Stop messing around, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a family of nine, nine kids. Where are you in the pecking order?
0: Eight.
1: Maisie, eight. Uh, yeah, there's nine of us. I'm the eighth. I'm the second to last. Second to last.
0: Yeah. One of your one of your brothers played uh, cricket for Trinidad and Tobago, right? Yeah, Clint. So it's a very sporty family. Oh,
1: extremely sporty family. He, I don't know how he didn't go on to make West Indies cricket, but he had came up to England while I was at Aston Villa and played in the <laughs> Lancashire League, first class cricket, and he double century, hundred and fifty. He was making. You know, if you look through the history book there, he he had done extremely well at that level as well. So, yeah, very, very much so a sporting family. In, in fact, back in the days, you had to be. There was no social media. The only way you can sort of hang out or meet people or meet your friends was in the ballpark. And the way of entertaining yourself, you used to run 100 meters or 50 meters among yourself and so the crowd would gather around and people would bet who was the quickest person in the village. That sort of upbringing was really fun and exciting for us because that's all we knew. Was you the quickest? I'm the slowest in the family.
3: The slowest? <laughs> Don't believe that.
1: Yeah, I'm the slowest in the family. All my brothers and them are much faster than me. Bloody yeah
3: So did you never see football as a career, Dwight? Did you think that was untouchable for you?
1: Yeah, very much so because it's uh, it's never been achieved before. I mean, nobody has broken out of the the Caribbean into what you call serious professional level uh, as a professional footballer. Don't forget we are known as a cricketing destination really because the West Indies cricket team in the 60s and 70s and 80s used to dominate cricket uh, from an international level so a lot of people affiliate the West Indies as a cricketing countries to visit, where domestically football was the biggest sports out there. A lot of people didn't know that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, growing up, you kind of wanted to just play for the more the, the local teams in them and pretty much try to represent your country. I think that was the highest. I'm hoping probably get a scholarship from your schooling experience to America. So a lot of people used to get a lot of scholarship to go to America and that's about it but no one is breaking into, into international football certainly uh, on the continent of Europe so that was like mm, never part of the agenda if anything mm-hmm. was to happen was to, likely to get a scholarship to go to a university in America instead.
3: So how old were you when you thought that being a professional footballer was, could be a possibility for you?
1: Well, I still think it wasn't a possibility. I think what had kind of happened, I still was in school at 16. And then I was playing for the national senior team at 16. (laughs) And in that period of time, we were one point away from qualifying for the 1990 World Cup. So that, that drew a lot of attention. Back home, the media to be the smallest island, we were playing America. At home, we needed one point to qualify for the World Cup. Um, so you can imagine playing against the might of America, a small population of 1.2 million people. I mean, New York City alone has got 8 million or 10 million people and probably more. (laughs) So (laughs) That's just what we was up against, Maisel. But, um, yeah, I mean, we are deemed as pretty much of like a third-world country. We're not exposed to a lot of things or a lot of things being given to us or that kind of stuff. We have to, you know, graft and you know, sort of find your way up wherever best you can. You can imagine, like I said, you know, family of nine, two-bedroom house, we all pile up in one room trying to sleep on top of each other. (laughs) That was the upbringing back then, you know what I mean? So, yeah, so when people say, oh, you got things easily, it was a real challenge, certainly Mm. growing up. Uh, But again, I I see um, a lot of people who had the talent really never really gone on and I really wanted to make a difference. And uh, so I avoid all the, 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 the kind of stuff that can sort of, you know, get you sideways and go off the rails a little bit. And I had a brother who was a carper. So that helps. He keeps me in line. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we we a family, even though all of us, there was, you know, just my dad drank. No, no one within the family drinks and smoke and that kind of stuff. So, which is very unusual. You can imagine back in the Caribbean, back there the Montreal, the spliff and stuff that was happening around. I could to get indulged in that, but um, no, I was never part of that. So,
2: so Yaki, do you know that your your teammates then for that World Cup team, where would they be playing? Would they be all over the world or just in the Caribbean sort of thing?
1: No, that was a bunch of local guys.
2: Wow. So who was your? Who, who would have been in your group?
1: Well, that was America, Mexico, uh, Costa Rica, those type of North American teams. That, that was uh, the group. And normally, usually, it's only two teams from that continent advanced to the World Cup. Yeah. So Mexico had already qualified. We was in that group. We needed one point at home. And of course, we lost the game <laughs> 1 0 at home. So, yeah, that was the a, a devastation of my 16th birthday um, oh. pretty much <laughs> happening. So, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure you were still parted. No, I didn't party them times, maze. So I was still a minor. Where was I going to go? I'm sure I'm sure Listen
2: listen, you can say anything on here you know you can tell the truth
1: (laughs) No no and Maisel you know what seriously it's only till I come to England I endure the the social side of life a little bit in terms of you know I never drank till I was 21 you don't even know that I never drank any alcohol till I was on my 21st birthday I got absolutely smashed on (laughs) Baileys
2: Don't worry about that I I got smashed on Southern Comfort
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, right, yeah. so I was drinking at twenty. At Twenty-one is my first ever alcoholic drink. Really.
0: Wow. So, at what point in this period in your life did you start thinking you could make it, and maybe places like the Premier League or La Liga could be options to you?
1: Well, I, 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 in that campaign when Trinidad and Tobago was at a point away from the World Cup, as like I mentioned, that's when I started getting the interest in me, predominantly a lot of teams in America, the university. I could have gone to Howard University and the FIU uh, International Florida University. So those were the option like every other player before my time has had that option to go to America. And then what was lucky about in that period of time, Aston Villa came to the Caribbean. Don't ask me why or how. They, they sort of traveled along that, that line and it was a they came on a 10 days kind of trip like you always do when you have a break in the season. And so I played against Aston Villa. There was this talk about this young kid playing for Trinidad and Tobago. And that's how it kind of all stemmed. And then I was invited over for on a five week's trials before we played America. And that's how it all kind of stemmed. And the possibility of me going to, to England, that's how it all came about in the end. It was it a was the manager then, okay? Graham Taylor. Graham Taylor. Yeah.
3: So when you were 18, that's when you actually made the move?
1: Well, it was 89, wasn't it? I mean, that's, the World Cup was in 1990. The playoff was in 89. And as I said, there was a huge build-up to the, that final game in the World Cup uh, and because there was a huge break. That's when I was, I think, Assevilla travelled in February. And um, so then that, they invited me over on a five-week trial in that period of time. I did the five-week trial and came back in time for obviously starting to get ready for this world cup campaign mm-hmm. and in that period of time obviously I've impressed I scored four goals on my my first game for Aston Villa like in in the reserve or whatever it was and so then obviously I knew that I, I might be getting the contract it wasn't confirmed mm-hmm. and, and there was so much red tape back then as well you know you yeah. needed to be not only a, a full international you had to have all the qualification to get into England and all that stuff I, of course I was still a minor so I had to get permission from my family. They had to sign papers, all the legal stuff was going on. It was things that we never dealt with as a family. Um, so there was a lot happening there. But yeah, I think at that moment, straight after the uh, I came back, I, I got wind that they're ready to offer me a contract.
3: Did you know much about English football? What, who was your the team that you supported back then?
1: Well, I married because obviously football was, I was obsessed with football then. So yeah, we used to you know watch the black and white television back in those days and, have one of my brothers or the younger brother go outside and move the antennas around to get the car. <laughs> Just hold it up outside. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's how it was back then. Yeah. So I Brilliant. used to watch, well, I'm sure Maisie know much as I do, big league soccer. Yeah. You probably don't even know what big league soccer, but that's what it was stemmed from the big league soccer. So we used to watch a lot of English teams. Tottenham was the team that I support with Huddle and RD and those type of guys. So just like the, the brand of football that they used to play and the players that, you know, a bunch of flair guys who can really, you know, sort of um, entertain you while they were playing. So yeah,
0: Tottenham was the team I support. So is it right, at this point, you, you moved to Aston Villa. You're a right winger rather than a centre forward.
1: Yeah, I was, um, I was more, of, I was always a centre forward. But, you know, when you, I can dribble the football and in England. Back then, a dribbler tend to be more on the, the flanks, as they call it, the wide men, you know, um, the wingers. You know, you give it to the winger and they go, go on, run at the, the defenders. Yeah. And so that's what we, we we used to do. And because I could have done that, I wasn't a great cross of the football because I, I, I wasn't used to that style of play. But yeah, that that's what it was. And so I had to start it off in that. And it was, as I said, don't forget, I was only 16 going on 17. So I was kind of like, you know, what's what's this about? What's this professional thing is about? All I knew I was going to England to play football and that was it. Um, and so this was a what I call an educational part of my development. And I was I feel I was in the right setup, in the right place. I only had a two and a half year contract as well. So I knew I only had limited time to make the progress, develop um, as quickly as I could and make sure make an impact. So yeah, um, yeah, started off as a winger for sure.
3: And did you enjoy your time there at Aston Villa? How, what was it like the first year for you? I mean, the weather obviously was very different. Was that something that took you a while to get used to, the food?
1: <laughs> well, think of a, a lonely kid coming from the Caribbean <laughs> back then. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a game shock. changer. It was a yeah, culture shock. You know, I kind of knew what I was going in for until you actually got there. The weather, the food, the people, the culture. It's just everything. You'd
2: never have even seen snow or anything, would you?
1: Well, I've I come across here because I've been traveling, I've been traveling in America with the national team and that kind of stuff. So I've come across. Right. Yeah. But nothing like when I came over then in 89 and don't forget me, the weather was like, I mean, t- today the weather's nowhere near as bad as like 20 years, 30 years ago. <laughs> it is, you know, you still got to go out in the snow and train or shovel snow. About yeah, yeah. And forget, you know, to put a football pitch on like I, I never forget the day I got up and I saw the amount of snow outside. I'm thinking to myself, "Okay, I'm just going to stay in my room all day." I got a telephone call asking me why am I, why are you not a trainer? I'm like, oh, "You're not supposed to train in this weather here. What can you do?" That's when, that's when, that's when the reality finally kicked in. I'm thinking, "Bloody hell, this is." This is nuts, man. This is not, this is not for me. But uh, I had to put all my gear. I didn't have, again, when I came, I didn't have proper clothing. I only had T-shirts and shorts. <laughs> so I had to be given all these and winter clothes. What, what
3: month did you come for your trial? Was it winter? or well, was It, it was summer? Actually,
1: when you it it was actually winter.
3: <laughs> oh,
1: no. It was freezing. The, the, the wind and the, you know, seriously. I don't know how people play football in this, but I tell them. <laughs> these guys are crazy. Um, but I knew, I knew in all of that, I kind of know that this is where I wanted to be, man. you know what I mean? This
2: is, yeah, yeah. This
1: is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's either that, go back in the Caribbean, hang out on the, the sidewalks, drink a beer or something like that, and go swimming or play some local football. I just wanted to make a difference. So I knew this was a, a game changer for me, and I had to. Suck it in, so to speak, and yeah. I did. It was it was tough for the first six months being away from everyone, but eventually, a little bit of sunshine, the weather change, you start to feel good. You got climatized, you get used to your beans and toast in the <laughs> afternoon before <laughs> pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty much your beans and toast with some cheese on top. I never experienced
3: that. It's That's like, a good meal. I, I love <laughs> that.
0: Yeah. So were you were you uh, living in living in Birmingham? And obviously still really young, totally different country, totally different culture. Who were the, who were the people that helped you come to terms with, with that move? Well, lucky enough, I had Tony Daly. His mom is Jamaican, as British
1: as they come. I've got yeah. Brian Small. You remember Brian Small?
2: Yeah, yeah, Small, yeah. yeah.
1: Right back, left back, sorry. And then boys kind of take me under their wings and looked at me and thought I was... In fact, I'm moving with Tony Daly, mom. They thought it would be good for me to interact with a West Indian background and all that kind of stuff. Um, that didn't quite go to plan. And then they moved me up closer to the training ground because I had to get on a bus and also was like, what the hell is all this about? <laughs> and I moved closer to the training ground with a family there that we used to go like into digs back then, yeah. the digs. And I kind of like how they operated. And I asked the club to put me in that digs for a period of time. So I spent... My first two years in Diggs, uh, in Birmingham. But yeah, those are the guys who kind of get me through that time and, and really look out to me. And people like David Platt and all them eventually later on all play the role in the in the end.
0: And what was the football like at this point? Did it feel like, did it feel, was it different to, to what you'd been playing back home?
1: Yeah, um, it was more ball sessions back in the Caribbean, a bit of samba football, Brazilian, because that's all we... And then I come here, and you have to run down the channel and both men. Just amazing, well no? Just hit it in the channel. <laughs> it's a thing that you call hit it in the channel, and you're gonna chase after it, even though if you can't get it. You're still gonna run it down. That was pretty much new to me. From back to front, ball was launched from back to front rather than try to play through the stages of into midfield up to your your front men. So it was a it's, a it's it's a new thing. But for me, I was even though I was a professional at 17. I was already playing with men, yeah. you know, twice my age back in the Caribbean. The guys and them who I was playing with, they're all in their late 20s or 30s or something like that, you know, so I kind of used to it. So when I played against guys my age, I was like way above them in many respects. But yeah, it was just a matter of getting used to it. You know, you're training, you're developing, you're getting to understand what British football is all about and having to adapt. That's basically what I did.
3: What about moving to the centre-forward role? Did that happen quite early on Um, in your time at Aston Villa? Did you make that decision? Did the manager make the decision?
1: No, not quite. Not, not, not really. I mean, I, again, as a kid, I was, I, forget, I was a kid then, so I was still very much in the development stage. It took me you know, three, four years of understanding the British game, developing my strength as a person, and playing wide right, occasionally play centre-forward for the, for the reserve team because that was a big thing back then. Reserve football was a huge thing. That was where you needed to impress to get up to the first team. And don't forget where they have 18-man squad now on a bench. We used to have 14, Maisie, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: 14-11 and two substitutes and a goalkeeper if you're lucky. So, you know, reserve football was such a big thing. And you kind of played in various positions, but center forward, everybody knew that that's where I wanted to play. But like I said before, because I can dribble someone, I used to end up on the wing in the first team because they already had, you would know, you needed a big, strong kind of number nine who can head it, you know, like Cascarino and those type of guys and big Sarah Regis and those. So I I watched and learn from these guys along the way. I was glad I didn't play center forward because I probably got my... I would have got
2: myself kicked in so many times because I'm still developing. You know. York, you, who was the centre forwards then? Uh, Villa. Well, like I said I played with John Fashanu, people yeah. like Cascarino.
1: Who else was there back then? Cascarino. Who was before Dean Saunders?
2: Ah, yeah, yeah, Dalian.
1: Dalian Atkinson. Yeah, that that group of guys before me. Yeah.
2: So you you came in just just before the the Premier League started, would it be? Yeah,
1: I started to play a little bit. in ninety two. By then I was. In fact, I finished up top scoring 92 for Villa in my first full season as a, like, you know, getting in on a regular basis when I say, like, substitute. If I'm not playing, I was mainly substitution. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, how, that's kind of how it's, it, it's, it started for me.
0: And what about your eventual move to Manchester United? What was that like for you? Because... I know that it was quite difficult and you had to go and speak to the chairman and John Gregory said that Villa wouldn't let you go if they didn't get Andy Cole in return, which looking at it now would have been absolutely insane.
1: Yeah, no, that was a crazy period of time because I think what people fail to realise, I was at Aston Villa for 10 years, you know? I gave that club and, I, you know, I mean, I was only a teen, as I said, I joined the club and I felt we had finished second, fourth, fifth or something like that in the period of time when I really started to establish myself. And of course, when you play for Trinidad and Tobago from an international point of view, you don't probably get the recognition that you deserve. Mm. Uh, so when I get to 25, I again I felt like I can I needed a bigger platform. I needed to challenge myself. And so what a lot of people didn't realize, I had gone into the chairman, they called me into a meeting with myself, obviously myself and my agent. And within the conversation, they offer me one million pounds more. They offer me a million pounds on that day. If I sign the contract, I get an extra million there to stay at a football club. I never forget it. And I'm thinking to my agent, let's just find this. You know what I mean? And in the end, after discussing with him, you know, he says, you can either earn money or you want to go and win honors. And so then yeah. when, when we break it down in that category, you realize well, a little bit, it's not about the money. I've had a great 10 years here at this football club. I feel like I needed a new challenge. And so when United came in and, and, and showed it interest in me, I said, listen, United is where I want to be. You know, I, I'm not interested in your money. I want to go to United. And so that's what, that's basically how that decision. And of course, Gregory and I had a good rapport because he was assistant to Brian Little. Brian Little is really the one who, encouraged me to play down the middle. Once he become the uh, head coach of uh, Aston Villa, he said, listen, there's no way you're playing right or left. You're playing down the middle. And that's when I start blossoming as a back into my ID role. But I had eight years of developing and getting to that stage of my career. But it's certainly once Man United come in as I, like I've always looked back and said, it wasn't about the money because they offered me a better pay package than what United was offering me. And I turned that down because I wanted to test myself at the very highest level and I certainly wanted to play in the Champions League. And that was uh, the main attraction and, of course, win titles along the way.
2: What was your conversation with the gaffer then? Your first conversation?
1: Well, I, again, I've got a telephone. <laughs> can I say it now? I'm not sure. Yeah, you can <laughs> say what thought, you want, mate. We all it. We've all said it. I got a telephone come to on my phone. I think I was at the Belfry and I was trying to hit some golf ball and my phone ring. This weird number and like, hello. And then this kind of Scottish accent come on and said, "Hi, is this Dwight? Uh, this is so Alex." Yeah, I'm like, I, the phone nearly fell on the floor. It's like, you know, kind of pissed off. Really, this is just a, a wind, you know, up. wind up kind <laughs> of stuff happening, Maisie. To be fair, and so. I kind of hang up on him, literally, at the time. You put I the phone down on up. him? Yeah, I put the phone down because I saw a little piece So I kind of put the phone down uh, because I didn't, I didn't know because I just thought this is just a wind-up. Yeah, yeah. my, my agent told me not to answer the phone. These people will be trying to ring you and all sorts so, of, you know, just be on your gut. So I kind of put the phone down. Then he rang back. Then he says, you know, Dwight, this is Alex Ferguson here. I just spoke to Brian Little, blah, blah, blah. I want you to join the football club. Um, And it was very brief, but he was very to the point. And it was like, okay, yeah, I'd love to come and play for you. And that was it. And then so I put the phone down and rang my agent and said, guess what? So Alex Ferguson (laughs) Ferguson just rang me. What's that about? What's going on? Because he's obviously on the other end of the phone trying to negotiate all this kind of stuff. I didn't know what was happening, but I was obviously dead trough that I got a call from him in the end.
2: And then you went back to it in a few balls? Well, I was shanking a few at the end. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> nervous. <laughs> I, like, I, can't, I can't concentrate, but this, is,
1: this is happening for you. And uh, I ended up getting a call two seconds later from Brian Little. He had left Villa then. And so he rang me and said, listen, I've just had an interesting call because I think what the gaffer is good about, which you get to understand more about the gaffer, about so, Alex, he, he seems to do a background check on you, yeah. And so, he rang Brian Little and I asked Brian Little about what I'm like and blah blah. And so, and of course, once he got the, the seal of approval, then that's when he called me. It was great. Did you have to pay Brian Little then? No, I didn't have to pay him though, no, but he did. Are you sure? No, I didn't. He, he knew exactly what, what it was like as an individual, anyway.
2: Yorkie, come on, your background. No. There's, there's never in a million years. Brantley, oh, he's a good lad. You know, he stays in and he uh, looks after himself.
1: Yeah, uh, amazing. You amazed? You amazed, right? I am well, amazed. I, amazed. Oh. <laughs> I am that amazed. I only, only transparent when I come to you guys, I and mean, it's all gone to People, when <laughs> I that time.
3: I <laughs> was a good guy when I make it There was probably one bad influence in that changing room, Dwight, and I know who it was.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, well, that that's true. I mean, I. I was a I was a fun person in the dressing room, that's what it
2: was. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, am I right in thinking, Dwight, before uh, the move went through, you had to drive to the chairman's house to convince him to sell you because he just didn't want to?
2: Well,
1: yeah, I mean, it, 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 yeah, it, was, it was that intense, and they were adamant that, you know, at one stage, they, they were obviously haggling over the price from what my agent was giving me the information. Of course, I wasn't involved in all this conversation. Um, I was only getting the information from my agent as to what was transpiring in, in, in those conversations. So it got to the stage where it was coming up to the deadline date. This move looked like it was going to be, you know, going sideways, pear shape. And so my agent decided that the best thing to do is to get up one morning early. I think it was a Wednesday. Um, the deadline date was on, finally on the Thursday. And so I got up Wednesday morning and drove to the chairman house at about 7 a.m. in the morning and knocked on his door. So he came out in his rope and he says, do I come in? Yes, uh, Dog Ellis back then, and the late Dog Ellis. And he invited me into his living room and I kind of burst out, kind of crying to him, saying, allow me to go. Let me fulfill my potential. I've given you X amount of, of years here and Villa. Back then, paid only ten thousand pounds for me at the time, right? So you can imagine, you know, from ten thousand pound to to twelve point six million. Good return. I mean, you're talking about in terms of the return, it was huge. And so the chairman saw the look on my face, and I had a good relationship with him, a fairly good relationship. Uh, And so that was the the key factor in making the move go through. Um, So yeah, so very very lucky that he. They wanted some record fee at the time because I think Shera was fifty million, Maisie. Yeah, and they yeah. wanted it to be they wanted it to be that figure or more than Shera, um, and I think that's where it all started to go a bit pear shaped. Um, so I went over and give give the sad face a little bit to the chairman, and he bought it, and so <laughs> and that's how the, the, the move was transpired.
0: Nice. Was there pressure on you? Did you or did you feel it because of the price? Because twelve point six million was a lot of money.
1: Yeah, not to me. I have, I have no idea about the money. The money wasn't going in my pocket or anything, yeah. so I didn't uh, Seriously, I mean, I don't know. I, again, I, again, maybe you know, maybe coming from the Caribbean, my my back attitude kind of helped me along the way. But earlier in the conversation, if you noted, I talked about living in a two bedroom house. Sometimes no electricity at times, the, the electricity gone out, no food on the table or very little bit of food on the table to feed all of us. You know, I see that as pressure and that was pressure back then. Now, I hear the word pressure a lot in our sport. I don't get that. I mean, I, 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 I kind of get the expectation and people expect you to perform when you go for that sort, but you win, lose or draw, you're still getting paid. You know, and mm. so I don't get when people use it as a pressure word that a, a fee that is it's not coming out of your pocket. It's not going into your pocket and you're still getting paid for doing what you love doing. Yeah, I don't deem that as pressure. So I, I, I take I, my take on it is a little, little bit different. And that's what makes me a different person, I suppose, because I don't see those things as pressure. I, I know I was going to to join a a football club of that status with the greatest manager, with arguably the best players in the world, that can only be excitement. That's not pressure. That's
2: going to be something
1: that you're going to be excited about. And I was.
3: And that's probably why you had the most incredible debut season because a lot of people do go to Manchester United or other clubs and do feel that pressure, but you're just going there happy as anything. And that's probably why you had such an incredible season, would you agree?
1: Well, I was a happy-go-lucky person, I suppose, Mm -hmm. and I was obviously delighted to be in such a a great aura of players and, you know, a a club of the status of Manchester United Football Club and playing for the best manager in the history of our sport. What more is there to be feel pressure about? I was more excited. I told my mom I was over the moon about the fact that I was making such a big move, and then, yeah... uh, the the rest is pretty much a history, as I said. My my Caribbean background has allowed me to to go in and and just do what I was doing before. I knew I was just going to play football again. There was nothing else that was asking me to do. If there was something else, then I might have struggled. But if it's football, then that's for me. That's the easy part. And the fact that I was surrounded of, with superstars, or you know what I call legends of our sport, I can only see football being easy and not being into a more of a pressure situation.
2: Yocky, you're one of the most laid-back lads I've ever known. Obviously, I know, you know, I've known you for, I don't know, 15, 20 years now, probably. When you was a kid growing up...
0: Maisie, the, the treble season was 21 years ago.
2: Oh, 20 years I've known him then. You remember 15,
0: 20? Time's moving <laughs> on.
2: Well, that's it. I mean, I to get your maths right, Maisie. Yeah, Yorkie, <laughs> I'm, I'm, 50, I'm 50 next week, man. Come on, <laughs> cut me a little loose, but... Just going back to when you was a kid, and I don't know whether this has any any way of understanding the way you are, but you had a, a really bad accident as a kid when you got knocked over. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but you've got an unbelievable scar on the back and it looks like a rocket. Now, obviously, I know you was a young kid at the time, but does that in any way think, do you know what, I'm, I'm so lucky being where I am now that that is exactly the way you are? just horizontal all the time <laughs>
1: <laughs> interesting you brought that up Maze. yeah i mean yeah a lot of people don't know unless you know me personally and see it yeah um it's not something i obviously go around and sort of you know showcase around the world to no. everyone the reality is that yeah i mean i don't know much about it when i was two years of age my my sister and i went to the shop i she was holding my hands one of my sisters was across the my other sister was across the road by the bus stop waiting for the bus to come along and so we went into the shop together and of course as a kid she probably just took her eye off me that one moment and i kind of run out and my sister was waving across the road to me so i kind of run out towards her not knowing cars were coming from both sides i mean i i, I honestly i have no recollection of anything i I have no idea. I I just have been told this story over and over. Maybe one little vivid thing. I remember coming out of the hospital. I was only, I think I've been told I spent six months in the hospital. Wow. As a kid, 1973. Think about it. In a third world country, where are you going to find? And I've been told again that there was a, a doctor in the car behind and somehow he was a Chinese doctor. Where, where's a Chinese guy doing in the Caribbean at the time? <laughs> so probably I have my, you know, guardian angels looking yeah. over me. And, and that's how I kind of been saved by this doctor. I don't know who he is, never met him, don't know where he's from, anything about it. So yeah, I literally should not have been here. And I was given a second chance in life. And so, you know, back to your question. Yeah, I do live on a, more of a daily sort of basis and take things as it comes and not think about, you know, distant future because, I'd, like I said, what I've been through, even though I have very little collection of it, it just makes me realize that, you know, you're not here on this earth for a, a long time and you've got to enjoy it and embrace it for what it is. And so given that second chance um, and to play football at this level, that's why I was the way I am. And when you see me come into the in the morning and all happy and chirpy and all that. I think that's probably all a step from you know my upbringing back home. Yeah.
3: Do you remember when Dwight first arrived, Maisie? What was what was your first yeah. impressions? Well,
2: obviously I played against him, so you knew that he's a he's a fantastic player. You just look at him, and all he does is look at him smiling. Now he's, he didn't even know he's smiling, but he's actually smiling, <laughs> and that's how Yorkie was. Came in, big smile on the face, big character. And and for the manager to spend the money that they spent at the time, it was a lot of money. You knew exactly what you were getting. You're getting the finished article. You know, you didn't have to. You didn't have to. Yeah. You didn't have to worry about Yorkie bedding in because that was just instinctive. You knew exactly who he was. Great target player, could run the channels, could finish. That's, that's the epitome of a great striker. Obviously, you know, knowing him now for, for 20 odd years, Sam. <laughs> You know, that smile's infectious. And, and it, it was, a, it was a, great, a great bit of business that Sir Alex brought him in because he was a character in the dressing room as well. And Yorkie will tell you, we had a great, a great dressing room yeah. and Yorkie just brought that little bit more flair in there. And the way he is, he's, you know, like I say, he's laid back and that's a great thing about Yorkie. But you know, come the Saturday, Sunday, whenever you play, he's on his mettle. And he was um, a fantastic, fantastic uh, addition to to what was a, a fantastic squad.
0: Well, you say you brought a bit of flair. Dwight, you also brought loads of goals with you. In your debut season, in that Champions League run, obviously, there's so much to talk about with the treble. But in that debut season, you scored against Inter Milan, Juventus, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. I mean, that's all the European heavyweights. Took them all on, scored against them all.
1: Well, yeah. Um, uh... I kind of know that in the back of my head. I've never heard anyone sort of mention it in the sense like you did. But you know, having said all of that, I only look back now and I think there's only one team I never scored against was Real Madrid. That more haunt me. It's not you know like you mentioned the the four heavyweight that didn't. I kind of expected myself to score against his team, but there's one team continue to bug me to this day is Real Madrid. I could not score against them to save my life. Um, but everybody else, like you mentioned, of course, you know, and that's maybe talk about the difference in the flair. You, when you, you're the reason that I said I joined United, not just to win the Premier League, but to play on the biggest stage against the biggest clubs in Europe. And so that platform was set up, not the way I would have been in, intended to, you know, put in the group of debt, <laughs> you know, with Barcelona and Bayern at the same time. But that's what it was. You know, you got to get on with it and, and do your best. So I, for me, I, I love those nights and love those challenges because it was a whole new level for myself. i never experienced it. I didn't know what to expect. And this is is what all those 10 years at Aston Villa developing and, you know, sort of, you know, being in the moment and moving on from Villa, which is a great club. But this is what, you know, football is all about, you know, Champions League against the big names, against a big team in Europe. And uh, so, yeah, I I was up for it. That's the reason I came to United. It it was great. Those were just great, fun memories.
3: What about your family at this time, Dwight? Did they come and watch you many times in England?
1: Yeah, very expensive. (laughs) 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 Back in the days, they all make sure and come. They all, you know, panned out. And of course, I have to fulfill all the bills and the flights and everything for everyone, which was fine. Um, yeah, but that's it. The, the, my my mom and uh, my dad and everybody, you know. In fact, my dad didn't come in all the years I've been in England. He just didn't want to travel. He didn't want to fly. Um, but my mom, my sisters, everybody, everybody's been. Everybody had the opportunity to visit one way or the other. From even my Villa days, they're already traveling. And of course, when I made that big move to Man United, they couldn't wait to all come over. I used to get them over predominantly at Christmas time because that was the busiest time of the year. Winter for them, keep them inside, the food <laughs> were ready, you know, all the, the prepping was already there in the house. Um, it was a big household at the time to, to accommodate most of them. Brothers used to come in the summer, uh, more happening for, for my, my brothers and them. But my, in terms of my, my brother and sisters, they like the winter. They enjoy themselves being here at that time. So, yeah, they all been...
3: And you say you were a Tottenham supporter, but nine brothers and sisters—there must have been a Man United fan amongst them.
1: There wasn't really. They all obviously <laughs> really? supported. Yeah, they all supported me when obviously when I once I moved to Villa, that was a team yeah. that they all sort of kept their eye on for ten years. And at the moment I moved to Man United, the Elysian just kind of moved from there and moved over to, uh, to Man United. And, to this day, they're still obviously my most successful time as a player. So they're now stuck with United, and you're often enough, you get compared to when you were playing. Why they're not doing this, and compared to what they're doing this time of the year now, and so that's the kind of uh, sort of conversation you get. But yeah, they're all United uh, fan now in in many respects because, like I said, that was my most successful time as a player and uh they were all part of it so they become very much a united fans now.
0: not a family member but you did have an iconic relationship with andy cole and i don't think united have had a strike partnership before or since that compared to the two of you and the chemistry you had on the pitch how did that come about was it just natural as soon as you started training together
1: no yeah it's kind of remarkable and a lot of people we talked about, obviously, the relationship with myself and Coley, but they didn't realize what was happening behind the scene. What, what exactly happened is that when I joined United, you know, normally the manager puts you in the city center. He puts me out in the village, in Alder the Edge, in a little Mickey Mouse hotel <laughs> that no one I could see anyone. I never forget it. He put me in some Mickey Mouse hotel, <laughs> the Edge hotel. There was only about, you know, 20, bed, 20, 20 bedrooms or 20, 20 rooms in that apartment. So, obviously, he kept me out of the way. Coley had lived in Wimslow at the time, and which was close to all the edge. And so, Coley and I, I knew, I knew Coley before when he was at uh, Newcastle. And then, obviously, he went to United, and I keep following him. He wasn't really buddy-buddy, but obviously out of respect, knowing Coley in passing and having conversation. And I think when I joined the club, I know everybody, Maisie and everybody at the club made me feel welcome, but Coley went out his way a little bit more. I don't know if you think it was his right to do that because there was a big rumours that Coley was going to be leaving the club. You remember, Maisie? That's when I came, the rumours was that Coley was supposed to be moving on. But Coley went out his way. He took me around Manchester, showed me the areas to live in or look for house and also the places not to go my side. He said, "Don't go in there by yourself late at night. <laughs> Stay away from that kind of stuff." So he, he he went out his way to make me feel very very at home. Not only on top of that, with all the speculation, he invited me to his house for dinner. So I kind of find it strange, you know. There's me talking. You know, he's on his way out of United, but Coley wasn't about that. And and this is what I enjoy about Coley. Coley and I relationship started. Way before we start playing, and the bun was kind of developing or brewing in the background that people didn't know. And of course, my first few games at United, I played with Ollie, Teddy, and then I played with Giggsy and ahead of Coley. I never forget it. I'm like I'm looking at Coley and thinking he could seriously be leaving the football club because when Giggsy are playing as a centre forward alongside you with Coley on the bench, that's kind of signal telling you things not so great. Um, but Coley and I started to, to develop. And the, the funny thing, we were playing an opposite side in the, in the game. And somehow the manager says, right, everybody else has got a chance. And Coley come in there and then just hit the ground running. We just got on like house on fire. And we complement each other. You know, Teddy is similar like me, my style of play. Ollie, who wasn't really a, first, a first-time regular in many sense, although he started you know, the gaffer saw me as a number nine, which replaced Ollie and Teddy, uh, Ollie and Coley. More that sense, but Coley is a proper number nine, as you know, like to run in, and I kind of like to link, come yeah. to my feet, and link the play. So that kind of role that I was playing, realized that Coley was the ideal partner for me because Coley was opposite to me. Teddy is like me. Ollie likes a little bit like Coley, but the manager maybe not want to play Ollie on a regular basis, like when I was there so when Coley came in and started playing like he did and did what he was capable of doing somebody who has a goal record a record scoring at Man United like he did it was kind of hard to see how the manager didn't want him around in the first place um, but yeah it turned out to be the best thing ever happened and it, we, we complement each other very very well.
3: What about You said everybody was very welcoming at that time. What did you make of the standard of football and training? Obviously, you've played against Manchester United lots of times. But what was it like going into the, the training every day? Did you notice a big difference?
1: Well, that was a big difference. Um, when, I, when I left Villa, I thought I was a very good player. I really did thought that. Until I walked through the doors at Man United and realized that "Mm, this is a different level. The intensity in the training, these are players who have won trophies. You know, the competition among us, the healthy competition, the standard of training, the keyboard sessions, you realize it's just a different level, the the caliber of players in and around you. And you just realize, "Mm, well, you have to up your game here. This is not, you know, strolling through a training session like I used to do at Villa and still be the top man there. This is like, you know, saddle up, you're in for a ride here, and you've got to get your skates on and try to move with the, with the guy as you're going to get left behind. And I recognize that from a very, very first day in training when I joined the box, keep ball position, and, and Keno fired one at me. You know, from really close range, maybe five yards away, he really fired one at me. And then he looked at me, and his grunt was, Cantona would have got hold of that. <laughs> I miscontrolled it. Yeah, and uh, I, I never forget that. Um, <laughs> so that was you know, introduction to me in many respects. Twelve point five million. Yeah. Twelve point six million. Cantona would have got all of that. <laughs> so then I realized that okay, okay, bring it on. Let's let's do this. And so that was when it all kick started and recognized that this was a different level of players and the caliber that surrounded me. Listen, I have to say when I was a villa there was some good players, including Gareth Southgate at the time when I left them there, they're all there. Um, but this was a whole different level when I came there um, at Man United.
0: So we should get into it. Your debut season, you win everything. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that like? What are your memories of that campaign? Because you, uh, you were Premier League top goalscorer, you won Premier League player of the season. We've talked about some of the Champions League teams you scored against. It just all went right.
1: Yeah, well, it's called the perfect wave, isn't it? It doesn't happen very often. I joined the club at the right time. I think all those things, and we, we had luck along the way. Um, we talk about the caliber of players surrounding us. I joined United to win things. I didn't expect us to win all three trophies in my first year. And so that was, uh, uh, that was something that took us all by surprise. Um, I think coming off the previous year, we didn't, they didn't win anything. So we expected to go for the league, which was the priority in that conversation, of course, in Europe to try and make some headways into Europe. But the way our the season had panned out, like you mentioned, to finish top scorer from an individual point of view, to finish top scorer, get the player of the year, you know, score against all the big teams, go on to win the treble. You couldn't write a better script, could you? You, could, you just couldn't. I mean, that's, that's the pinnacle. That's the ultimate in sport. And... um to have done it in the way we did it, you know, it wasn't an easy ride. It was game after game, challenges after challenge, you know, back up against the wall when we looked like we were going to lose the likes of Liverpool in the FA Cup, Charlton away, you know, Middlesbrough away, those kind of games that, you know, looked like it was going down to the wire we was going to walk away from nothing and eventually we sneaked, a, you know, a goal, the FA Cup, they talk about Giggs, Peter Schmeichel, there's so much incident to talk about, and mm. if you in a situation in a team sport and all the, the the stuff that was unfolding in that campaign, it was just too much to remember and it was just coming one after the next, one after the next, and you were in that bubble at the time, it was just the best place. I loved it. I was looking forward to training, linking up with the guys every morning, coming in with a big grin on my face, and I think when we kind of got through Juventus, I think there was a a spell of about 21 days or something like that or whatever. And we start counting the days off and we're trying to nitpick every game we go and we keep getting the results as a team. And, you know, Peter and I used to come in and go 21 days to go, come on. (laughs) And, you know, sort of get that little drive. It was just so fun. It was such a fun place to be. You know, you couldn't wait to come into training the next day because of the excitement. And the news, Maisie, Maisie used to say, oh, yeah. you're in the front page of the newspaper again, York. what have I done now? And that was like <laughs> an entertainment value for, for Maisie every time I come in.
2: I loved it. I loved it. I love waking <laughs> up on a Sunday just to see what Yorkie's done.
1: <laughs> it, was just, it was just crazy. It was just like the best time in football. I mean, where, what else? I mean... How could you not enjoy those moments? And that's you know, we're talking 20 odd years ago, 21 years to the day, and yeah. here we are still talking and smiling. Not too many people have done that in our sports, and so you can only think, God, yeah, I wish you could relive those moments, but what a time, what a fun time it was. It was amazing.
0: What were you thinking when there were 10 minutes left at the new camp against Bayern Munich?
1: There was no thought process. I couldn't <laughs> I, I I honestly to this day I've never even looked at that I never saw the game I saw the, the obviously the goal the winning goal because it's been obviously highlighted on tv but I've never watched that game I've never watched that sort of stuff but it was just god I mean Maisie probably better experience than I I was okay, did, you, did, you,
2: did you ever watch any games back was you one of those players no Maisie no because no you know I you know I had such a ball in my playing
1: career you know often you hear people say they're depressed and i feel for these guys and some of them who say they missed the, the whole bunch that's what that's what we were there for yeah. to enjoy those moments mm. and some people must be taking it for granted i had a blast yeah i have you know i'm one of the probably the few guys who look back and think bloody hell what a life i had in football <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I i really didn't i, I did everything I wanted to do in football, and so now I've retired. I don't look back at my career and think, "I wish I've done this. I wish I've done that." Yeah,
3: uh, yeah.
1: no, nah, man, that that's not for me. I wouldn't change anything in the world. Man. I love my time as a player. I love love it. Okay, totally.
0: you don't want to, you don't want to change anything. But is it true that after after that season, after we win the treble? you went and asked Sir Alex Ferguson if you could have a year off to celebrate. Yeah, but we'd pay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good deal. <laughs> yeah, I tell
2: that story all the time. How yeah, oh on earth you can, you can go and ask a gaffer. Gaffer can have a yeah. year off to continue to celebrate.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, what else is to do in football after winning the trouble? I mean, I was at such a high. It was ridiculous. I mean, Concord was flying then, back then. I remember getting you Remember, we went on Concorde. I thought this is the way to fly. Yeah. I went to New York on Concorde. They got me up in the, the back in the days. They used to put you up in the pilot. I land Concorde yeah. in New York. Yeah. I'm thinking, well, what, what is there to achieve after this? There's nothing <laughs> else because everything else you do will be a failure or deem as a failure. And of course, the following year, we won the Premier
0: League. All right. I, I'm not letting you get on to the following year yet. What <laughs> happened? Did you go to his office? What did he yeah. reply?
1: What what no, tell no, us no, what I,
0: happened?
1: No, no, seriously. I I, I and that's a, that's a true thing. I went I went into the gaffer, or gaffer. what we what we doing. It's you know after you win the trouble, there's nothing to do. Can I have a year off from football and with pay and then I come back the next year and rejoin the team? Well, I mean, what were I you going to do for the whole year? That's i suppose you've never no, been sacked. I, I didn't, you know, honestly, I don't know what, what made me think that because I just thought, what else is there to do? There's nothing else to do. You know, what else can I, what, what possible more can we possibly do as a team? You know, we did something, repeat it. Yeah, repeat it again. That's about, but if you don't repeat it, you deem it as a failure.
2: Hold on. So, so we do the treble. Yeah. We're going pre-season. all right. You've you've gone into the gaffer's office now, and you want a year out. So then we go on tour.
0: Hang on, what he said? What did what did Sir Alex actually say? Because his like he always talks about how like he used to look into players' eyes and see if they had that desire, and if they didn't have it, they could go and stuff. And you've literally walked in and gone, "I fancy a year off." We've done this. Well, that was a fun moment. If
1: if ever if ever a time you were going to ask the gaffer for anything, yeah, that was the time to go in and ask him, right? Yeah. So I didn't have. I didn't have anything to lose. He could tell me to F off, which, which is what he did. He said, F off. <laughs> you can go get
2: off.
1: But it, it was kind of jokingly, but if he had said to be taking a year off, I would have taken it. But I, I knew that that wasn't going to happen. But I thought, you know what? It worth a try. You know what I mean? It worth a try. Oh, it worth a
2: try, yeah. That would been great. <laughs> what if all like 24 of us went in? Yeah. I could do with a year off, to be fair. I want to go with Yorkie.
3: So <laughs> like on Concord.
2: So that because I remember pre-season that the, the pre-season after, yeah, we got to uh, where are, where do we go? We went Australia, Australia, Hong Kong, China, Japan, and we play. Who did we play? Did we play? Was it Melbourne we played, or was it Sydney we played? One of the games. I think it was Sydney. That was in Sydney. Sydney. Yeah. So we played the game in Sydney and. uh we win the game 1-0. No. I think, I think we, that might have been Jesper's first goal. Win the game 1-0. So we have a night out in, in Sydney. Where are you going so with this,
0: Maybe?
2: I'm just... I, no. This is where... No, no, no. I won't mention all that bit. So the <laughs> next day in training...
0: <laughs>
2: what bit, Maisie? no, no, We'll stay. Well, well, Yorkie knows.
0: Stay on, football.
2: Yeah. So we get up training the next day. Obviously, Yorkie's a little bit late coming down, but the gaffer didn't go on tour with us this, this pre-season. So Steve McLaren was a, and it was like a free for all. So Yarkey's. Um, why
3: did Sir Alex not go? Sorry, to interrupt.
2: I'm not he sure. Was. I'm not sure. It, it no, was he just. Was getting, um, um,
1: um, he was getting. Uh, from was he getting Was he knighted? yeah? That's right.
2: Yeah, he was getting knighted.
1: Oh,
2: right. So yeah, so he missed the tour. So we so so we played again. We have a night out next day training, and those that trained, those that played, just did a warm down and. Wrestle has a little bit of running. So we're doing this warm down around this huge field, stopping, a few stretches, sit ups, bit of this, bit of that. We get up and we continue jogging. So this happens two, three times. And then we continue. You turn around, he's fast asleep. He's fell asleep because he's absolutely either steaming, whatever he is, but he's fell asleep. And we all get up and we just leave him, and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> crashed out. So because of him, we we all got our you know we was gonna have a, an afternoon off, but we didn't because of Yorkie. Back training, afternoon training because of him, fast asleep, blooded.
3: That's where you're talking about your horizontal <laughs> attitude. Like horizon. Later.
2: <laughs> I wasn't letter. I was just, we were running around in
1: circles. And, it, you know, just after a late night, just running around in circles, stopping. So I just, you know, we stop, keep stopping every time. And of course, after a late night out, like we were, I ended up lying down and that was it. I was ready to sleep. That was all it was.
2: Well, you, did, well, you ended up in there because we stayed, we st- the hotel where we stayed. Was it you, Butty, Teddy? Star City, yeah. I remember it. I know exactly where. Star Star da. City, yeah. Because <laughs> you all, all, those professionals went to bed at two o'clock curfew, and you lot went into the nightclub. No, nah,
1: we always, Maisie. Everybody was up to you know what I'm saying. Everybody was yeah. doing their own thing, yeah. and some stay up later than some some others, and that was it. I was one of the late ones coming in.
0: Do I? I always ask people this. I've spoken <laughs> to Wes about it. I've asked Maisie. I've spoken to a few other players, and I from the outside. It has always appeared that, like, pre season tour, you go to some sort of fairly glamorous location and it's a bit like a lad's holiday. And everyone always goes, No, it's really professional. It's really professional. What's your take on that?
1: I better stick with the boys, eh? They say it's all professional <laughs> than it is, wouldn't it? I mean,
0: I don't know if I'm as convinced by you as I am by others. I mean, yeah,
1: I mean, pre season is pre season. You gotta get prepared for the. For the season, so you got to do the right thing. Yeah, we didn't, yeah. we didn't live it up at all, mate. We didn't, it wasn't like that.
2: The gaffer always used to say, "You can have one night. That's it. Yeah, one night, and that was a That was a night out. But it was a good night. It was a hell of a night. <laughs> <laughs>
0: very professional night, I'm sure.
2: <laughs> oh,
1: brilliant! So, I love it.
3: Dwight, your second. If we move on to your second season. You didn't get your year off. You were straight back into it. Second season. Twenty-three goals, but you did say recently that Sir Alex actually called you a failure. Yep. For twenty-three goals, did you understand that at the time?
1: I didn't quite get it. I mean, obviously now I got I understand where he's coming from, knowing the manager himself a, a little bit more. That was my second year, as you said. You I finished top scorer. I think was the twenty-six goals in total uh, over the season. First year, 29, second year, 26. Manager said he was a failure. Didn't quite get it at the time. I look back now and I totally understand where he was coming from. Understand that, you know, each year you need to better yourself. And I didn't do that. At the time, even though I felt I justified myself as his number one striker, being the top scorer in, in two years running, I felt that was a great return in respect. Don't forget the FA Cup was taken away from us.
3: Yeah, you I'm know, we didn't say, play the FA
1: Cup. A lot has been said about it because the lads probably enjoyed themselves that much in Brazil. But we didn't get a chance to defend our FA Cup, which, again, with the team that we had and the way we went on to win the Premier League that year, who was to say that we wasn't capable of defending the FA Cup? So that was an opportunity gone for whatever reason and the politics side of football, which us as players didn't get involved in, but that was a big blow for us because we didn't get to defend the FA Cup that year. So maybe I could have even finished up with more goals. But mm. going back to your question about being a failure, I understand because when you look at what Messi and you know, the Ronaldo of this world, each year they come back and try to better their target. And I quite didn't see that. And I, I, I understand it fully now, clearly, now that I'm out of the game and I'm a lot more wiser. While in being in the bubble, I felt being top scorer at United was enough to justify my argument. But in the manager's eyes, you know, I was supposed to to be better on the, on the following year, and I didn't. So I kind of obviously I get it now. I didn't get it at the time, um, but I understand where he's coming from. So you know, having those experience and those things in your head, understand that each day, each moment, and when you're training you got to keep pushing yourself to get better every season and not just sit on your laurels. Not that I did that that year, but I understand where totally, I, I get it totally where he's coming from.
3: Was that his way to motivate you? And secondly, what sort of a relationship did you have with him in that respect? Did he say things like that to try and motivate you often?
1: Well, he said things like that, maybe to keep you on your toes and not realizing. And I'm like looking at him like, with one eye, i thinking to myself, well, what is he going on about? I'm still a top scorer, 26 goals. But he feel that maybe if I'd extend myself a bit more and push myself to maybe an even uh, higher level, um, maybe I could have gotten more, who's to say? And maybe I was just content with what I was doing instead of, you know, sort of going for far more than just being accepting of just being a top scorer at a club. And I think that's the mentality, you know, a little like Sir Roy Keane. And so Alex has obviously got that kind of driving mentality to every day where sometimes I can just kind of, kind of lay back and thought, right, I've done enough here when I probably could have gone through a little bit more. So, again, that was all like a learning curve for me and recognizing where it is. And, and like I said, I can always look back now and think, wow, I, I get the picture. I didn't get it while I was in the bubble because, it, you know, I was in that bubble. But I get the, the clearer picture now that I'm much older and wiser, mm-hmm. what he was talking about.
0: What about your third season? You won another Premier League trophy. So three in a row. That must have been pretty special.
1: Well, again, it's never been done in the history of the Premier League. So we keep breaking records, this this, this squad. And then the way we were doing it, it wasn't, you know, we were within the league. Not like how Liverpool is likely to win it this year, but we winning it reasonable comfort. But I think the first year was the one that we've been pushed all the way by the the, the other two seasons, I think by 12 points and 18 points or something like that. Um, so yeah, that's, that to me, um, showing our dominance in that period of time, how football was. Again, I didn't have the heights of those two first seasons, but you got to give Teddy, I look back and Teddy had an amazing season that year uh, by his time, um, was playing second filler to myself and Coley and somehow You know, the quality of Teddy is not to be taken lightly. And he proved what a quality player he is himself. And so Teddy finished up the top scorer. I was kind of playing second fiddle to that. And Teddy went on to be the player of the year. So he had an unbelievable season. But yeah, in terms of winning the Premier League, three in a row, in the way that we did it, dominating football from start to finish most of the games, like I said, it's a it's a great thrill, a great privilege to play alongside these great players, great manager with, with such great history uh, in a football club. Felt like we were we were walking on water in many respects. You know, there back then, the way our football was playing, entertaining, attacking football, real, you know, people were getting their money's worth when they turned up to see United. And that's that's the kind of feeling you want. And it was just great to be part of such a, an outstanding squad of players.
0: You also scored your hat trick against Arsenal?
1: Yeah, again, you know, again, you look back and you can tick that box. How many players have been able to score a hat trick against Arsenal the way I did it? It was a, you know, I needed a big performance in that game and and I produced it. Um, It was great. But what people fail to recognize, we had a little break and then the next game I was dropped. You know, after scoring, you know, a lot of people don't recognize that I scored a hat-trick against Arsenal. We played the next game against Leeds. I never forget it. And this, and so when I recognized during the week I wasn't going to be playing, i gone to the manager's office and says, "Gaffer, why am I not playing? He gone, and he turned to me and said, he could have scored a hat-trick against that back four that day.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: and that was the Gaffer message to me. I'm like, I'm looking at him and thinking, you know, is the gaffer for real here? But I was dropped. I was left. I was on the bench. I, I, I got 20 minutes, the back end of uh, the Leeds game. Um, I was dropped. Again, Teddy was having a remarkable, but you think when you score a hat-trick, you'll be back in the team. That's the standard at United, you know, the quality that we had possessed. And the gaffer left me out. And Teddy came straight back in the, in the team after that. So that's, that's what he was up against at United. But yeah, I was left out of that team, amazing. And uh, when I scored a hat-trick against Arsenal, the next game I didn't play. So there you go.
3: It's probably a stupid question, Dwight. If you could relive one game as a Manchester United player, what would it be? Everybody has a different answer, don't they? But...
1: Relive? No, I, I, don't think, I don't think I like that reliving business. I, I, like I said before, I had a blast playing football. Every game, you unfortunately, in our sports, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, you're going to have bad games, you have good games. But most of the time in my playing career, I had really amazing time. And I don't want to look back as anything negative. I made mistakes along the way as an individual. I've learned from it, and I've moved on. And that's how I see life generally going forward. I don't you know, once you take the negative and turn it into a positive is which I've always been a positive person. I don't like negative people. And yeah, I know you can look back and think of the Trevor winning year and all that. That's, those are memories that will live with you forever. And the games that you're playing, that's what memories are for, to remember those great moments and the fun moments you know, eradicate the, the disappointment along the way. But I was very lucky. Not everybody has, you know, my luck and fortune in, in, in our sports. I, I have a lot of fun memories in there to last me for a lifetime. And that's how I wanted to to remain. Uh, and like I said, I I, I I cringe at times when I hear some players, the uh, depression and they miss the game and miss the camaraderie. And I didn't have, any of those problems. I truly believe that I had the best time in my footballing career and I wouldn't want to change anything. And yeah, for what it is, I don't I don't miss football. You know, I don't miss it because I had my time and I love every single it. And I like to think of yeah, of course in hindsight, you would like to think you can do you could have achieved more, or you could have done this or you could have done that. But that's just that's just life. Jockey, would you not like
2: to just, like Helen just touched on there, one game where you think, what am I playing in that game again? Like Juventus away, Barca away. No, because we
1: we done, we done the things, mate. We've gone on to
2: win so that. Just answer the game. question. Just answer the question. Would you not, what? come on. There must be one, one game where you think, do you know what, I was shit all that game. The Arsenal game, you just go after it. Yeah.
1: Oh, why would I want to relive that? Or there's a score, a hat
2: trick again. Well, so it's just a question.
1: Yeah, I get it. I understand, but no, Maisie, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think that way. I just. I just. You know what I'm like. Eh, I just don't right. think them ways again.
2: I really don't. Right. I mean, I seriously right, okay. don't. All right, sorry, Alice.
0: Maisie, stop badgering me. No, no,
1: seriously, I'm not trying to be difficult, but I don't. No, I no, no,
2: don't. no. I get that. I get that.
0: When did you decide uh, to put your collar up? Because I thought that was so cool. I was doing it at Villa. I, my The first season that I can properly remember football is the year United won the treble. Right. So, although I know Eric Cantona did it, my first proper memories of, of a player wearing their collar up and that being like, oh, well, is, is you doing it?
1: Yeah, I was doing it at the Villa then and then of course, you know, you know.
0: To not keep himself
1: warm. <laughs> no, no people. <laughs> can you, can not keep people keep the up? cold off your neck? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit chilly in the back of my ears. So the collar was the one that kept it cool but you know not that people was comparing me to cantona far from it because he was the one who people said first did it but i was doing it certainly at villa as well but i wasn't i, I like to see myself as an entertainer that's Maisie. i used to come in the dressing room keep you up in the dustbin yeah you know, trying to entertain the boys and all that kind of stuff that's and volleying balls across the you know, the massage table and keep you up with yeah, this stuff. Remember?
2: A know, hundred so, letters. Hundred yeah. letters in a little square, a little tile you know on I the mean? floor.
1: Yeah, that, I was an I was a, I see myself as an entertainer and that's how I played the game. Of course I played to win, but I was I was an entertainer. I like to entertain and I did that in the dressing room, right? exactly the same. You know, I was juggling balls in the <laughs> falling balls yeah. in the dressing room and people used to say Yorkie Maisie especially can you not keep quiet for a minute? Do you not just sit down like or like 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 us, like the rest of us.
2: No, no. And chance. I was,
1: nah, 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 let's just keep this. anyone wants to play keepy up and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's how I see the game.
2: It was like that on our nights out as well. You always entertained us on the night out. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, maybe those uh, shots, I mean, remember
2: the Kit Kat shots in Reform?
1: Oh yeah, the, 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 not, not the Kit Kat, it was more like, there was kind of more to like a B-52 Mesa.
2: Yeah, but when you get 50 of them like, right, come <laughs> on, that's <you're>, Yorkie, f*** <laughs> off. But you didn't say no though. No, well, no, I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: didn't say no, you know, it was no, great. No, was, was,
2: but we had fun, that's the,
1: the, Absolutely. the beauty, you know, the beauty of all sport, you know. It's, still, it's a group of players on the same journey. We're all in the same boat. We're all having a great time, but still have our eyes on the prize and not, re- you know. I never forget when I joined United, after the first game, you guys went to some Chester races. I'd never been to races before. <laughs> Is it Chester races? Yeah. And then straight from there, we went out to the night out, straight into the, to the city on a Wednesday or something. I was like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on here? I never forget that night. It's like... I joined the biggest club in
0: the world and the boys are on the lash <laughs> <laughs> on the Wednesday game Saturday I'm going to bring it back to football yeah. I wonder I know you've, you've done some coaching and you've spoken about management and I know a few years ago you spoke to MUTV uh, and you told uh, Marcus Rashford that if he's ever struggling for goals your advice is to sit back and watch your goals um, how, how much more coaching do you want to do in the future how involved do you want to be in football well, first of all,
1: I didn't say Martin uh, Rashford to watch my goal. I said, listen, you need to just keep
0: practising on your finishing. You know, never... I meant his own goals, not, not your goals.
1: Yeah, I didn't see myself as a, as, as a goal scorer. Even though I scored goals, I was never like a Coley. Coley live uh, him and Van Lesteroy live for goal. My game wasn't based on that. I just add that to my game. I was more the link man and and Maisie will tell you, I was more the, the, the link person in, in the team. I, I like to, I, I could dribble someone and, and pass it to Coley to score. I get as much satisfaction from that. You know, Rude and them guys, if they didn't score, they got upset. Coley wasn't quite like Rude, but he's a, he, he knows that he was always judging goals, scoring. And I was just playing the game. And if goals comes, great. If he didn't, it didn't bother me once, what, what bits? But yeah, going back to you to your question about coaching. Yeah, I, I am finally saying to not just you guys, but, you know, I, I, I kind of tore with it a little bit. And of course, once I was given the role as ambassador to travel and been out of the country and traveling and all that, I think I've done that. You know, I've kind of done that now. I, I've, I don't think there is any another country to travel to because I've been traveling for the past seven, eight years since I retired from football. And now I, I genuinely believe because the person that I am, uh, I've, I've been around different, various different dressing rooms. I've always bring good, positive vibes to people and get good results along the way as, a, as an individual being part of that dressing room. And sometimes you just feel like, I just know I will be good at, at, uh, at management. I really do. I wouldn't say uh, if I didn't firmly believe that. I just feel like I, I need an opportunity in it. And, we all know what we, what I've been saying in, in recent time, the difficulty of getting into management is one that, you know, the, the injustice in it is just kind of not fair across the board when it's good for some others and it's not good for the likes of myself and other black players uh, who's been trying to get into management. We just feel like the equality is not there somewhere along the line. So uh, I, I intend to fully now, uh, and I fully committed to it, to go into management one way or the other or to be given an opportunity. And I'm, I'm, I've decided now fully that this is the right time to to get to try and get into management.
0: What do you think is the appropriate response on a systemic level to make sure those kind of discriminations become impossible?
1: We, I think it's been well documented in recent time, not just Sterling, the likes of myself has been reaching out to colleagues Saul Campbell People have been talking about the injustice and the, the systemic um, racism that we, we all face, and we, are, we all face it at some stage. It's very difficult if you haven't been in that position or you haven't been on the receiving end to recognize what is going around. But it's clear to all to see, and I think I've documented, documented it well before, we, we the amount of black players that has graced the game and contribute to the game. Don't forget, football is a people sport, You know the, the, what we consider the poor people sport. When you look around and you look around in the modern day game, there is not enough, just not enough black ex-players or black people in the game at the very top, even in the, in the middle class of the, the sport. And I, I, and I think in my 20 years as a professional footballer, I can only remember having one black monsieur in the back, backroom staff, let alone as a coach. So. We, we, we are just saying that, I'm not saying it's bad for, to give opportunities to the new uprising managers. We've seen people been fast forward into these positions and I'm happy about that. But equally, while you're doing that, all we are saying, why are we not given a chance equally like others who's been given those opportunities into management? And if so, why are we having to go down such a, a low level and make that transition? We seem like we have to do four or five opportunities before we get one. And so to make my argument even clearer, Maisie, and I'll bring Maisie in on this, and this, will, this might shock a few people. In the 1999 squad, Maisie,
2: yeah.
1: how many ex-Man United players do you think has been given chance into management?
2: Ooh.
1: Go ahead, Maisie. Give me the names.
2: Um, yep. One. gigsy Two. Nev did a little bit, didn't
1: he, but... Nev. Valencia, assistant coach of England.
3: That's, yeah. that's proper.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: that's four. post goals at Oldham? Five. Keane. Six.
3: Ollie, I haven't mentioned Ollie.:
1: Ollie. Seven. Teddy. Eight. Butty. Nine. Henning. Henningberg. Yardi. Yardi. The 11 already on. So you see what I mean? Yeah. And the ones who don't want it, maybe you. And you've got the likes of, of obviously, Bex, who obviously owns the team. Yeah, we got Dennis who doesn't want it. I'm sure if he wanted it, he would have got it. So yeah, just you know, goes to show that's the kind of systemic sort of system we talked about that is just not fair. The injustice that makes you wonder why. So it's kind of difficult to to sort of comprehend. And half the time, you you know, I I I just, just don't I just don't get it. And the fact that you know I, I've applied for, for for a job or two before and got. No response from it. Yo,
2: you've had nothing back at all.
1: Amazing. And this is what, you know, Villa is one of the teams that I said I spent 10 years. I genuinely felt like, you know, they could have said, you know, come in, let's look at your CV, see what you've done, talk to us. Maybe if I'm not good enough, go away, say what I need to do, what, how I can go about trying to do it, and let's go from there. At least I could have, you know, acknowledged
2: that. Yeah. But, I but didn't you're, not a, you're not getting the and opportunity. Time.
1: Well, yeah. And the thing is, I, I got to so Alex. I went into the office. And I said, listen, I'm trying to get the Villa job. Would you endorse me? He says, I'd love to. Pick the phone up and rang Villa at the time.
2: Yeah.
1: I never got anything back. It's crazy
2: how the world works. Do you think you'll get to a point where you think, well, you might be at it now, where you think, that's it. I'm not even going
1: to. No, no, no. It may have I've turned the page. I said, right, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna prove and do it, and I know that I'm not gonna get two and three chances where other people will get two and three chances. I mean, for instance, Yap has already had three managerial manage opportunity. I haven't even got one, and that's what the injustice I'm talking about. Not that I'm grudging that I'm happy for for all my friends. Yeah, of course, I yeah, yeah. yeah. but how come they're getting two, three, four, and you still can't get one? And so for me, that's where it stood. I just draw a reference to you that you probably didn't even think. But in that squad, that pool there, there's, that's a high percentage. That is such a high percentage that has been given even a little of an opportunity. And yet I can't even get an opportunity anywhere across the board, which is, which is, a little, which is the injustice and the unfairness of the system. And I, I think that's, but I, I, like I said, I, I had to fight as a player to make a name for myself. I had to come through some challenges and it's the same. I felt, you know, having the respect in the game and what I've done in the game might have given me an opportunity. Why isn't any black managers in the Premier League? There is none in La Liga. There is none in Germany. There is none in Italy. You know, so it, it goes on. It's on a global stage, this is. And even going to the championship, there isn't. So, what, what you, I, I try not to think it wasn't. And it, that was the main reason behind it. It's not because of this color, of your skin, but somehow you're feeling now that it has to be something to do with it. You know, that that misconception that people have that black people might be lazy, they're incomprehensible, they're not, they're not. They're not fully focused. They can't run an organization or they're not clever enough to do this. So, so that is the, the misconception. Like I said, Maisie, you see me even to this day. I work out every single day. Yeah. I don't brag about it. I don't miss training. You don't hear me in, in, in various things. And players who have done far worse in their career, even to this day, I ain't jobs. Dwight, would you like to see the Rooney
0: Rule implemented?
1: Well, the Rooney Rule is a token gesture. That's what it is. It's a slap in the face. Why why you have to introduce a Rooney? If it has nothing to do with your skin color, why is the Rooney rule been implemented? It can only be because of your skin color. Can't be anything else. It shouldn't be. But even that has been implemented or it's been there for in the background. People dust that and they talk about it and they just dust it under the carpet. And they dust it under the carpet for years. You know, so I am not cheesed off by the fact that these young managers have been given opportunity, I embrace that. I think it's a good thing because often enough, you look around for years that the same merry-go-round in management continue to get jobs after jobs. Mm -hmm. So I embrace the new breed of managers who are getting in. But for Cranky, give us a crack. Give us the same, let's all start on the white line. They're getting a head start, two, three, four jobs and you're still not in one are not even given an opportunity and then people say go get experience where am I going to get experience from and the ones who are given job what experience have they got before
0: it's an impossible um situation for for us to solve obviously because we're just three idiots that that run a podcast Mm -hmm. um but Dwight hopefully things things will change and not just in football but obviously everybody wants proper global systematic change in this um but thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's a slightly weird way to end it because yeah. I know you're so passionate about it but we've hit our, we've hit our time so we have to say goodbye um, but thank you so much for sharing your stories. I, I think people will have really enjoyed them. No problem
1: bud. Anytime. Appreciate it guys. What are you doing tonight mate? Are you going out? No, no, no. It's dark out here bud. Look, it's dark out here already, bud. Wow. Proper dark.
0: Dwight, if, um, if we were going to get one of your former teammates on who would you recommend to tell us some good stories? Teammates, yeah, it's just someone you so obviously to from, from your time at United, just someone you think would uh, would have something good to say.
1: Well, I'd like to think they all have good things to say about me, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs>
0: um, maybe who you recommend, man? You had Skozy
2: a couple of times now, have you? I'd like, do you know what? I'd, I'd, I'd love to get Coley on. Coley would be great, yeah. Coley's a good man, yeah, yeah. Coley's your boy, that's the next man to go to. Perfect, thank you, Dwight.
3: Thank you. Cheers, Jokovic,
2: Ciao. All right, guys, appreciate it. Take it easy, buddy. All right, Maisie. see you guys.
0: So there it is. That's our chat with Dwight York. Uh, We could have carried on talking, but unfortunately we did have to stop where we were. Um, Maisie, thanks for getting him on. That was good fun.
2: Absolute pleasure. Yeah, some good stories there. And um, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. as as with a lot of people, I think you look at... um, their upbringing and, um, you know, the way they were as kids that came over at 16-year-old freezing his, uh, his Teddy
0: Smiles off. The one thing I think that is um, perhaps ignored is, is, as you say, it's just maybe just how good he was. It was only in 2017 Sergio Aguero overtook him as the, as the top-scoring non-European in the Premier League. So once Aguero hit his 124th, he went past Dwight York. So Dwight York, for a long time, was the highest scoring non-European in Premier League football history. With 123. Yeah. With 123, great maths.
3: Ten years at Aston Villa as well. That's yeah. a long, That's... long time, wasn't
0: it? Yeah. And imagine moving
2: clubs and then your first first year, you win the treble.
3: One of my favourite stories as well is when he actually hung up the phone on Sir Alex Ferguson, although we have heard people say that oh. before, but it must be such a surreal moment. <laughs> I love that. And we should also point out that there was one or two technical issues um, with Dwight. Uh, His phone kept vibrating and it wasn't really aligned up very well. So if you're listening uh, and you hear certain sounds, that is his phone vibrating. It's not Maisie's beer machine this time. We haven't even heard your beer machine today.
0: I know. I know. What's going on? Viv will be furious.
3: Viv will be not happy.
0: It's unplugged. That's why.
3: What I'm glad we did clear up is that he didn't have a year off, though.
0: Yes, yeah. Um, what I think is unfortunately though, this will not rank as one of our greats because I saw a comment the other day on the Apple Podcast app, and the comment was, "You can tell when it's a great episode because Helen's cried." I oh, know. No tears today, so we didn't. We didn't quite make it. We didn't quite. She's reach not in
3: tears for a few weeks. Who have we got next week?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Someone to make me cry. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, speaking of messages, should we have a look at some? Yes. Uh, I've got one from Reinhold Gebhardt, which I think is an awesome name. It says, This guy, unbelievable, 90 minutes in injury time, tears in my eyes, laughing and crying. Thank you for this one. Plus, the three of you, Helen, David, and Sam, such emotional reactions. Outstanding podcast. I'm a great fan of it. Please forgive my German English, Reinhold Gebhardt, who's in Hamburg, Germany. Thanks, Reinhardt. Uh,
3: let me begin by thanking you, Sam, Helen, Maisie, and the whole podcast team. I have listened to all the episodes so far, I love the episodes featuring two players also those featuring Maisie's mates Uh, the jokes and the stories from the changing rooms make such episodes more fun having said that the ever episode was my favourite his life story is very inspiring very much agree too My oldest memory of Man United was watching a pre-season preview show. Anchor who cannot shut up about the teenage wonder kid, Wayne Rooney, who United had just signed. I was nine years old then. Ever since that day, I was a fan of Waza and United. Whenever my friends have the Ronaldo or Messi debate, I would say Wayne Rooney. I think he's the most underrated footballer of the 2000s. That team, especially Rooney and Ronaldo, was a big part of my childhood. I know I'm asking for a lot here, but if you could get Rooney and Ronaldo in the same episode, that would be the dream.
0: It would be amazing. Well,
3: that would be the dream, guys, wouldn't it? We will work on that. Thank you very much, um Shyam and Nayan.
0: Um, next I've got Jai Benning says, Hi Sam, Helen and Maisie. I just wanted to let you know that I love the podcast. I'm an enthusiastic listener. I started listening about two or three months ago and since have finished every episode and always look forward to a Tuesday morning when the next episode is out. I really enjoyed the Cantona and Everett podcast in particular and I love their stories. Thank you so much for keeping up the good work. Would obviously love to hear from Sir Alex Ferguson. He would be a great guest. Thanks. That's from Jai Benning. Jai, he would be a phenomenal guest and um, good morning on this Tuesday as I imagine you're listening. Maisie, I've got a tweet from someone the other day who um, uh, I'd read out. Well, I mentioned I referenced a tweet that they'd sent me about how how we should have to change the staff if we can't get a Johnny Evans podcast. And so he messaged me again because he'd heard me reference it in the uh, in the podcast. And he was so excited to hear his message referenced that he ran in to tell his wife who was on a work Zoom call and interrupted the whole thing.
3: (laughs) Um, Another one here, Mark Bainbridge. Hi, Helen, Sam and David. Thank you for the great podcast. Being from the generation, I loved hearing from Robbo and Norman Whiteside. I've always been United supporter, 53 years, and have had many enjoyable times at Old Trafford. Many generations of my family have been to the iconic ground and I'm proud to say my sons are keeping up this tradition. A few years ago, I was lucky enough to bump into Remy Moses, who was a lovely guy. I think Remy would be great ex-player for your podcast. Uh, Keep up the good work. That is from Mark. Thank you very much indeed. We will try all those suggestions out. We'll try and get those guys on for you. Uh,
0: well, if you want to send us a message, um, then please do. That's it for this week. But you can catch us at United Podcast at Uk or on like the Apple podcast. You can subscribe, you can leave a review, you can rate, you can do all that stuff. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you once again for giving us your time. Um, we're enjoying it and we're glad you are too. We'll see you next week. Bye.
3: Thanks, guys. See you later. Thanks a lot. Bye.